several years ago, a few of us from Lamb had the pleasure of attending the naturalization ceremony for one of Dan Velker's employees named Victor. Now, a naturalization ceremony is when after a long period of preparation, uh, an immigrant is able to become a citizen of the United States. Now, this follows years of preparation, three to five years minimum of just living in the United States, uh, being able to show at least a minimum knowledge of the English language, and then uh, being able to show knowledge of U.S. history. You have to take an exam, and if you're able to pass that exam after that point, at least three to five years, you're able to become a citizen of the United States. So we were able to attend the ceremony of Victor's. After the ceremony, Victor received a proper gift of becoming a United States citizen, a shotgun. And then after that, to celebrate, we shot skeet with Victor. The ceremony left an impression on a lot of us. If you ever have the opportunity to attend, it is very powerful. The vows that were made by Victor and others who were becoming citizens felt as solemn and weighty as anything I've ever witnessed, really. Listen to just a portion of the oath that's taken to become an American citizen. I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen, that I will support and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. So help me God. That's weighty, isn't it? What's that? 1996. It's weighty, isn't it? You know, I I grew up like many of you saying the Pledge of Allegiance in school every day. But I never conceived of the gravity of citizenship in this way until I witnessed people like Victor renounce their citizenship of one place and give allegiance to another. Now, why are we talking about this? We're in this middle of a series called Lamb's Foundation. We're talking about bedrock issues of Christian faith that have united Christians around time and space. Uh, This series is the way that throughout history, the church has done essentially what they force Victor and others to do to become citizens of the United States. They give them a language and an understanding of what it means to be a part of this culture and not a part of your former culture. It's a transition period. And this is what the church has always done with people who are coming into the church, who are new Christians. They give them a language, a way of learning what it means to be a citizen of this new kingdom. This morning, we're talking about the creed. The Nicene Creed, which we profess together every Sunday after the sermon, and the Apostles' Creed, which is simply an abbreviated version of the Nicene Creed. Now, why do we need a sermon on the creed? I didn't grow up using these in my own background, and I'll talk about that a little more in a minute, but the reason I think we need this is because the creeds have always functioned as an oath of allegiance for Christians, a way of reaffirming our citizenship in the kingdom of God over against the kingdoms of the world. 
Through the creeds, we repeatedly confess that our highest allegiance belongs to God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So listen to the similarities between what Victor did that day and what Christians do at our baptism. Victor was asked to renounce all allegiance and fidelity to his prior thoughts, right? Likewise, Christians, since very early in the life of the church, have been asked at their baptism this question, do you renounce the devil and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? And the candidate responds, hopefully, I renounce them. Do you renounce the empty promises and deadly deceits of this world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? I renounce them. And do you renounce the sinful desires of the flesh that draw you from the love of God? A third time, I renounce them. The candidate is then prayed over in these words, Almighty God, deliver you from the powers of darkness and evil and lead you into the light and the obedience of the kingdom of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. A transfer of kingdoms. Kingdom of the world to the kingdom of God. And we follow that portion by asking questions from the Apostles' Creed. Do you believe in God the Father Almighty? They reply, I believe. Do you believe in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who was born of the Holy Spirit and Mary the Virgin, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, was dead and buried and rose on the third day, alive from the dead, and ascended into heavens and sits at the right hand of the Father and will come to judge the living and the dead? They reply, I believe. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Church and the resurrection of the flesh? A third time, I believe. And these three confessions are matched by three pourings or immersions in water. And they're raised up to become a part of the kingdom of God. A transfer of citizenship. When we are baptized, we become a citizen of a new kingdom. No longer a citizen of the world or primarily a citizen of our own home country, but a citizen of God's kingdom. And as we pray in the Lord's Prayer that his kingdom will come on earth as in heaven... This prayer is going to be answered one day. God's kingdom will reside on earth in full. No longer the kingdoms of this world. So the reason the naturalization ceremony that I, we got to witness of Victor and a Christian's baptism are so strikingly similar is because they, involve a, they both involve a transfer of allegiance, a transfer of citizenship. If you are a Christian... If you've been baptized, this is what you say with your life, with what you've done. I'm no longer a primary citizen of any country of this world. I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God and that his kingdom will come to reign here. And this is what the creeds were developed to signify for us. They were never intended as dry formulations of belief. They are self-involving statements of faith, a kind of pledge of allegiance to God and his kingdom that entails trust and ongoing participation in that kingdom. Now, I mentioned that I didn't grow up using the creeds, and uh, my family didn't. In the Baptist tradition, um, there was actually this motto. The, the creeds were not looked on very favorably. This motto is kind of changing, but you would sometimes hear this. We have no creed but Christ. No book but the Bible. And that's catchy. It sounds nice, doesn't it? It does. 
It's all right. You got to give it to them. It's a good phrase. <laughs> the funny thing is, it is a kind of creed in itself. An anti-creedal creed, if you will. <laughs> More importantly, it's naive. It's naive. People who supposedly believe Christ and the Bible have come up with all sorts of ways of twisting the Bible. So at varying points, people have suggested that Christ wasn't really divine or that he wasn't really human. The reason the creeds exist is because the Bible has been abused and Christ himself has been scandalized. These reliable summaries help the church to stay faithful to God and to our mission. If Christians know the creeds, they can, in the words of the New Testament writer Jude, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So I want to share with you for the next few minutes two ways that the creeds help us as a church and as individual Christians. So the first way they help us is the creeds help us hold to difficult truths. They help us hold to difficult truths. One of the most prominent features of our culture today in America is the belief that truth and morality are relative. That is funny, isn't it? <laughs> the belief that truth and morality... <laughs> That's not a good sign. Okay, sorry. Take a deep breath. <laughs> That's good. So in 2011, there was a national survey that came back saying, uh, with 47% of responders saying that morals are relative. There are not definite rights and wrongs for everyone. 47% of responders. There are not definite wrongs or rights for everyone. That was in 2011. We, I think we can pretty safely assume that that is on a trajectory to increase. In the midst of a culture where everything is slippery, what is it that we have to hold on to? The creeds are the very opposite of relativism. They defend, preserve, and protect the Christian faith from any kind of trend, fad, or philosophy of any given moment in history. They stood the test of time. In a culture of relativism, they proclaim firm and concrete truths about what we believe. They challenge us to commit ourselves to a God who is unchanging despite the changing nature of everything else. But the creeds are also very honest in how we commit ourselves to these truths. How do human beings hold on to strong convictions in a world where things are constantly shifting? Only through faith. This is an important point. Christians do believe that confident knowledge is possible. But knowledge always begins in faith. And this was the motto of the early Christians. Faith seeking understanding. Both the Apostles' Creeds and the Nicene Creed begin with these words. I, we believe. Actually, it's precisely the point that it's not I. It's we. It's something we profess together. We believe. And they're framed throughout with this proclamation of belief. As much as Christianity can be based in good thinking, 
as much as we need to use our heads and do all kinds of reading and learning about our faith, it is always rooted in faith. As much as we want all kinds of certainty about things in life, to live as human beings means to live by faith. We have so very few certainties in life. None of us know for certain what tomorrow holds, much less five, ten years from now. So the creeds begin by acknowledging this difficult truth, this difficult truth that humans are required to live by faith, by some creed or belief, whether Christian or non-Christian. You live by faith and you live by a creed. Doesn't mean life has to be carried out in a state of precarious uncertainty at every moment. Listen to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 9. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. I think part of what that means is that we have to put our faith in something that is firm so that we are going to be well established against the uncertainties of life. So what is the creed in your life that you live by? What kind of faith are you living by? Does it begin with, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, or does it begin with family, work, education, something else? It's a difficult truth to embrace that all our lives are lived by some creed or belief, and the creeds remind us of this constantly. We believe. We have faith. Now, the rest of the creeds are organized around the identity of God, a God who reveals himself and acts in the world as Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And in doing this, the creeds acknowledge that God is a mystery. They're holding on to this truth. God is a mystery. As much as we can learn about him, we cannot completely understand him. And Christian sects through history, this might be tough for us to grasp today, the, the battles that have been fought through history over this. But Christian sects through history have tried to come up with logical solutions over and over again uh, to try to avoid the mysterious nature of God and Trinity. And each time, they've scandalized an aspect of God. So there was an early sect called the Ebionites, and they denied Jesus' divinity claiming that an angel or a heavenly Christ figure entered into the body of a man, Jesus, at his baptism. Can you imagine if we could not believe that Jesus had a real body? Can you imagine the implications of that? This would open the door to people saying that the physical creation, the earth, our bodies, really are just evil, and we need to escape them. And what would that say about God himself, that his creation is inherently bad? We actually know where this goes, because another group took this direction. Gnostics claimed that a wicked demigod created the world, and that Jesus came to save us from this God by releasing our souls from our bodies. In the midst of all these attempts to uh, logically qualify God, help us hold on to the challenging mystery of God as Father, Creator, Son, Redeemer, and Holy Spirit. 
who fills us and continues the work of the Son and the Father in the world. They are equal in their divinity, their eternity, and in their majesty. And these things are important not just because the Bible says so. They actually affect our lives in an on-the-ground way. Because if the Trinity is real, then ultimate reality consists of a community of persons who know and love one another. This is the reality behind all the worlds. A community of persons, God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, who know and love each other. And if we as human beings are made in the image of this God, but we try to live lives of selfishness outside of community and service to others, it's going to crush us. You know, when Jesus tells us that we must give up our lives to really find ourselves, but if we don't give up our lives, we'll lose ourselves. What Jesus was doing was he was leaning on what the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have done throughout all eternity. You see, the Trinity is the foundation of all the world and of all humanity. And if we reject this notion of a God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who know and love one another and serve one another in selfless love, then we also reject what it means to be a human being, to love others, to lay down our lives, to serve others, to walk this path as the path of true human flourishing. The creed, it helps us hold to the difficult truth of living by faith, of having to live our lives by faith, and putting our faith in the mystery of the Trinity, the triune God who poured himself out, Father, Son, and Spirit, for humanity, for the world. Now, one last way that the creeds help us. They help us to stay unified, even in our differences. The creeds help us as a church, as a global church, to stay unified despite our differences. So in the creed, we say towards the end, we believe in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And this is drawn from Jesus's prayer that we heard in our gospel reading, John 17. Jesus prayed before his death that his church would be one. You could say this was his dying request to the Father that his church would be one, that it would reflect his own oneness with the Father. Now, we have to ask ourselves, if we believe this was just an idealistic Jesus, or whether he really meant this prayer, and we are called as Christians to pursue oneness, not just within our body, but with other Christians and other places of other denominations, Now, I have to admit that that coming from my, you know, no creed but Christ background, this was a difficult part of the creed for me at first. Uh, I I find that in many parts of the U.S., especially in the South, there are so many churches that if you don't agree with one on some small issue, you can probably go find another, where for a little while you'll agree on everything. And if at some point an issue comes up, then a group of you can just splinter off and you can create your own little group who agrees on everything for a while. This happens everywhere. 
And when this happens, the church begins to reflect the fractured and divided nature of the world. A passionate, pioneering spirit becomes an excuse sometimes for us to go do things our own way. The church needs to learn the difference between those foundational things that must be fought over and those lesser convictions that can be held with a more open hand. There are foundational factors to the gospel, things that if we compromise them, the whole good news of Christianity starts to lose its integrity. The debates that led to the creed, they dealt with these sorts of issues. Things at the heart of what it is to be a Christian. People were not arguing over, uh, say, carpet color in the, in the church. Or even the method of baptism, for that matter. They were arguing over the very nature of God himself. And if that sort of thing is at stake, we cannot sit by quietly. There are other matters like the method of baptism or even the the nature of predestination. Those things are much less essential. This is not to say we have no conviction on them, but we hold that conviction differently than other convictions. So Jesus's prayer for the church to be one was not theoretical idealism, a pipe dream. Before coming to the communion table every Sunday, we recite the creed and we're reminded that despite some inevitable differences that we will have between us and other Christians, we can still be united by one faith, one Lord, and one baptism. Now, this is the creed that unites all races, all tribes, all tongues, and nations throughout the globe. The creeds pass down a faith that comes to us through 2,000 years of earnest study, intense debate, gripping prayer, violent persecution and martyrdom, triumphant evangelism, and deliberate discipleship. So when we confess the creed in our church, what are we doing? We are validating the apostolic faith and we are standing in solidarity with those who in every place and in every age of history have confessed this same faith. That is amazing. We are standing with the church across the globe when we do this. And we're standing with the church through 2,000 years of history. This is a pledge of allegiance that transcends America or any other country. It is a global oath of citizenship in the kingdom of God. So if you do this sort of thing, many Christians do this even in their private devotional life. They use the creed as a way of committing themselves to God and remembering that even if they feel alone in the faith, they are never alone. Why do we need the creeds? Because they are our ongoing way of pledging our allegiance to God as our king and to his kingdom as foremost in our lives. When all the rest of our country is going crazy and thinking that that everything is going to rise or fall on who gets elected in November, Christians should stand with the creed and say, this is our king and this is our kingdom. They help us hold to difficult truths and they help us to stay unified, to remain one just as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one. I'm going to invite you now 
to stand in solidarity with brothers and sisters through the world who confess our allegiance to our king.